Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Right, we have a very good story lined up for you today on this episode of the Science of Sport podcast, but we'll get to that in a few moments' time. It's an intriguing one that we'll introduce to you once we get through our initial part of our podcast. And as usual, we're going to be talking about some of the stuff that's caught our eye over the last couple of weeks, and uh, Professor Ross Tucker, as usual, is with me. And uh, the first story that's come up is the story of the Triathlon Ironman World Championships, which... uh, when I looked at the times of the winner, I think the top 10 at all under eight hours, the top three broke the record. Four, I think it was. Top, top four. four. Mm. Unbelievable times. I mean, I remember the days when Mark Allen and Dave Scott were, uh, were doing that event, and they were, I think the record was like 8.06 or something like that. And that record stood for something like 20 years. And then suddenly, in the last few years, this record has come down enormously. And now, you know, if you're, under, if you're not under eight hours, you're not even on the top tens. But <laughs> this year extraordinarily good times yeah i know and, and you're not the only one actually travis hawkins is one of our patrons and he sent a message in about this and also a link to a um to a story which we'll get into in even more detail shortly but basically the end of his message is um as much as he loves the sports and wishes it were all true it all seems too unbelievable to be so <laughs> and so there's always i mean it's, we know this by now skepticism yeah, follows sensational but, performance yeah. but yeah, I, some of it. So some some of it's probably the shoes, and you see, this is. Hmm. I, I hate the shoes and thing. the bike tick. Yeah, but the shoes especially because like we've we've done this now for two years, and I hate talking about these stupid shoes. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a theme. But you know the what they've done is that they've confounded our ability to be skeptical. Mm. I mean, it was hard enough to be skeptical. <laughs> now you can't even be skeptical without being skeptical about what you're skeptical about. Yeah. <laughs> because in because. Strange improvements in performance are always going to be flagged up and and demand some kind of explanation, usually an unsatisfactory one. Mm. Now you add to that mix the fact that these shoes do make a difference of X, but nobody knows what X is. It could be one minute. It could be three minutes. Mm. In these triathlon shoes, it could be more than that because there's no regulation of them. That was the extraordinary thing that I discovered thanks to Travis Hawkins' comment and Nancy Trip Hawthorne, also another regular patron, submitted the same issue about the shoes. It turns out that in triathlon, they're not compliant with the world athletics regulations. Now, listeners will know that going back a few years, there were no world athletics regulations. Mm. The shoes came along and forced them to develop some kind of policy. And the policy that they ended up settling on is a, is a regulation or a maximum allowable stack height think of that as the thickness of the midsole and they set that at 40 mils Mm. triathlon has decided that they're not going to comply with that apparently and this is the most astonishing thing at the suggestion of athletics so there's a quote here in an article and i'll share this in the show notes where a spokesman confirms 
Since the implementation of this rule, i.e. the World Athletics Rule, and its approval is still under review and not defined to be implemented in other sports, World Athletics has recommended us not to adopt the rule until the process has been clearly defined. Therefore, we don't currently check or approve shoes. Now, remember, World Athletics went from having no rule to the Wild West, and then they had to squeeze the toothpaste back in the tube. (laughs) <laughs> How can they now say, and, and it is true that they've got a group that's now looking at this and they might change their own rule. Why would you tell another sport to do nothing until you decide when you've gone through exactly that issue yourself and been caught out by it? It's yeah. just amazing to me. Surely the default is to say implement our rule until further notice. <laughs> so what advice is that? Don't do anything. Let things just get out of control. And so the guy who wins in Kona couple of weeks back is a Norwegian not a surprise Gustav Aiden wearing a shoe from on which by all reports had a stack height easily at 50 mils mm-hmm. not compliant with world athletics rules because it doesn't have to be on is not going to release or say exactly what the specifications are because why would they mm. <laughs> and so it's, a, it's, so a it's not freely available to the public so that yeah. by, by definition yeah right and now and this is this is also a problem in road running where there is a regulation is it's still making a difference we can't interpret so we're looking at women's performances which we mentioned in our last podcast are revolutionized in the last few weeks is that the shoe mm. is it doping mm. and i think the shoe is almost like a shiny object that might have distracted from some of the other issues because you know in the absence of the shoes we'd be looking at these performances and going okay what else could explain this yeah but now we've got something to hey look over there Mm. and so all in all like there was never great trust this shoe thing has undermined it even more Ironman is obviously a a franchise um not necessarily a federation Mm. and do we know whether World Triathlon, for instance, the Olympic series is, is I don't know whether they've got similar rules because Ironman obviously operates reasonably independently from Olympic distance triathlon t- to some extent. So do we know whether it's the same rule at, at the ITU level? I, I don't. Know. I'd have to look it up. I mean, it came up only now. Yeah. Um, presumably the athletes who compete are still in their own national anti-doping agency testing pools. So. Mm-hmm. The two Norwegians who were on the podium, the French guy who split them, they would presumably be subject to testing by Norway and French anti-doping, respectively, I think. Um, But I'm not 100% sure on whether they test at the race. But again, testing at races catches very few people unless Mm. you make a screw up. And the sophistication in, in doping that we've seen in the last two, three decades not many people make mistakes anymore. Mm. So you have to target them outside of competition. Mm. And I don't know what triathlon's doing. I don't know what those countries are doing. Mm. But yes, if if there's an incentive for federations not to catch dopers, imagine how much more for a franchise. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. They, they don't want to have bad publicity, so mm. they're going to do everything. Yeah. I mean, and we are cast. I mean, I would love to investigate this further with Ironman to actually ask them exactly what the testing protocols are for athletes that are pure Ironman athletes on mm. their own and whether there is a testing and whether Ironman athletes fall under federations and doping agencies around the world because I, I don't know what the answer to that question is and I, I want to look into that for our next podcast mm. so we can yeah we'll come back to that up yeah and maybe I'm sure some of you are right at the coalface you could probably tell us yeah <laughs> you're yeah. going sitting there going come on guys yeah and well you if know, you do know let us do and yeah. educate us yeah. but but I have a I have a growing sense of unease at endurance sport generally mm. now actually, mm. Ironman the marathons, we've just 
mentioned that some of the the Kenyan athletes, twenty three suspended this yeah, year. Well, that's the next stuff we're going to talk about. <laughs> two last week, high profile names, yep. including the winner of the twenty twenty one Boston Marathon on the women's side. Um, that's Diana Kip Yokai, I think was the name. Yep. And t- and for a drug that those of you who follow cycling would recognise, triamcinolone, which is a glucocorticoid, so an anti, a powerful anti-inflammatory. Mm. You may remember it because Armstrong, Miller, and then Wiggins, and it was Sky. You know that was the drug everyone learned about, starting with Jiffy Bag scandals and then moving through parliamentary hearings. We learned that triamcinolone was being used by cyclists to basically shut off inflammation, and it is enormously powerful when you do it. Mm. It really is a Someone called it rocket fuel. That plus the weight loss equals performance. Now, I don't know what's happening in Kenya, but it seems to me, based on the stories I've read, that there are doctors who are giving this to athletes, athletes who are seeking doctors to give it to them, and potentially some uninformed athletes who don't know any better. So Mm. it's probably a combination of those three things, but that's a problem. And so when I see yesterday in Amsterdam, fastest debut ever by Alma Zayana, okay, not Kenya, Ethiopia, Mm. Second place also, 218 there for debutantes. So. In in Chicago a couple of weeks back, Ruth Chepnagedic, did you see this? No. She went through halfway in 65.44. Okay. So 211 pace. World record's 214. Mm. She, of course she blew up badly after 30 Ks and missed it by a few seconds. <laughs> but but she was on 212 pace up to 30 Ks. Wow. I mean, it's like... That's insane. That, 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 it's, I didn't know that. Like yeah. women's, we've spoken before about recalibration of women's of, of running. Women's mm. running's even more recalibrated. Yeah. And I don't know if I trust mm. that it's just shoes doing it. Mm. The only thing I thought about, and I'm being now optimistic, is one thing that, that we've learned that those shoes do is they reduce damage because mm. of the thickness and the softness of that midsole. You could, I guess, make the case that over time, training will change in response to the shoe. You can do 10% more than you're used to. Mm. You can do 5% more high quality work before you reach that physiological or mechanical limit, right? Mm-hmm. So you could make the case, maybe if you were hopeful, <laughs> that the performance evolution is a result of training driven by shoes. Mm. But given the 23 doping cases, mm. and that's in Kenya where they're looking, how many more do you think there are where they're not? That's the the hard thing to get my head around is that a lot of the Kenyan athletes are part of a system in Kenya that breeds top class runners. And, you know, having spoken to lots of those runners and those Kenyan runners, you know, a lot of them are coming in from rural areas. There's not a lot of education coming their way. And they're th- sort of flung into this international scene. Mm. So when I hear about this, these sort of cases, it's very hard for me to believe that they have independently gone and found somebody who can supply them with the right sort of drugs at the right time. It feels like this is a very deliberate, organized setup that's doing this, either within Kenya or within some system within athletics, because it doesn't feel that those athletes would be capable, first of all, of finding the right drugs and how to use them, because you need some level of sophistication to understand how to take them and what you can't just buy them behind somebody's back garage there's a sophisticated system in place to make sure that you get the right stuff yeah and and so there must be yeah there mu- there must be a system there and there must be people who are pulling mm. strings for sure there have to be so um, it's not random athletes looking for a bit of performance enhancement and it would be interesting mm. to know and i don't have enough insight from on the ground but to 
imagine you could make like you know when you watch crime series and they're hunting down <laughs> dealers on the wire or a murder or something and they draw a map and they link the victims together and so yeah. on it would be interesting to see that kind of map for Kenya like this athlete failed the test who's his coach who's the agent this athlete's a training partner same coach same agent and try and I, I don't know maybe there's something that could be done in that regard but, completely but the other thing I will say is you know we've often said again, as a non-doping explanation for Kenyan and Ethiopian success is over five, six generations, they acquire so much wisdom, mm. how to train, how to race and so on, and it gets handed down. And there's a significant amount of intellectual capital and understanding that's been built up. Doping would not be exempt from that. No. So it could well be that over time they've figured out because they had the need to and the opportunity to how to do this really well and at an organic level where it is dispersed as opposed mm. to being run by some sort of sophisticated mm. mastermind i don't I, know i don't i don't want to be a conspiracy theorist and i do apologize to the authorities in kenya but i it does it does sort of raise a flag around the russian state sponsored doping that is now basically banned all Russian athletes because that was a very deliberate attempt from Russian authorities to make sure their athletes got the best performance and in celebration of Russia's great athletic achievements. Mm. Um, and it's, it, it, I guess, you know, if you're, if, you're, if you're a Kenyan sports body or a Kenyan government, um, you know, you want your, your, country, your country to look good. And, in it, in, and Kenya looks good in terms of running and it celebrates the country and goes all over the world promoting Kenya. So there's a lot of reason for Kenyan runners to be at the top level um, and a lot of motive for them to keep them at the top level. Yeah, and a strong yeah. disincentive to actually tighten the screw Absolutely. and prevent that from happening. Absolutely. Because, yeah. you know, again, if you, if you get 2 3% over a two-hour event, mm. that's a minute or two. Yeah. It's a massive, massive effect. And mm. so, yeah, you could you could turn the notch one degree either side and you could open a floodgate mm. or shut it off completely. Mm. And I don't know what's happening. I mean, I often think, I don't know what it's like there. I know what it's like here. And if someone ever came along and said that South African athletes are benefiting from some sort of state-run, sophisticated doping, I'd pack out laughing. Because mm. we don't have the infrastructure, the people and the insight to do My that. My point, exactly, yeah. <clears throat> um, but what we do have is pockets of people who can then do it. And that might be more effective, you know. Mm. You might you might actually, you know, that three people can keep a secret if two of them are dead. <laughs> it might be better off that you have one group of 10, another group of 15, and yeah, you, you set it up like that instead. I, I genuinely do not know. Mm. Mm. But all I know is that there have been some crazy advances in performance, mm. not just in running, not just triathlon, not just cycling, but mm. across all three. Mm. Coincident with shoes, yes, mm. but surely not explainable only by shoe. And I don't know what the rest of that is. As a complete um, aside from this, what was very interesting is the way that world, um, the world athletic, the world marathon majors have uh, come out with a statement just over a month ago, where they were talking a bit about how they're recalibrating the marathon majors, and they've literally cut the prize money for the top athletes down dramatically uh, it's the, the numbers are quite staggering actually they haven't cut it by percentages like double digit percentages that I, I, I can't remember the numbers exactly but it's gone down a huge amount the idea being that they will spread the prize money also amongst the wheelchair athletes that will be brought their prize money will be brought up but the top level is not going to get as much money from world marathon majors as it has previously the goal being and this is what they said in the in the in the in the press release is that they were saying that 
the average runner running a marathon actually doesn't care about who won and doesn't even know who won. So for the people organizing the World Marathon Majors, they are becoming less focused on performance of the top elite than they are focusing on now getting the masses to participate in those races. So it's a shift. And whether that's had an impact on the pressure of professional athletes to be better, um, to do things that are probably beyond the law mm. so they can grab those sponsorships and those money deals and those sort of things and be the best because there's suddenly this pressure but they're not going to get as much money as they did previously. You know, yeah. that's all, all part of the, the this big cog that we're all that's thinking about. That's an interesting economic experiment because I suppose what it does is it lowers the gap between the marathon majors and the second tier marathons. Yes. So now a guy faced with a choice between going to Prague, say, or Vienna, Istanbul, Philadelphia, take your pick, as opposed to London, Chicago, Boston, New York, might actually go for the former, not the latter. Yep. And so you might then spread out where the top guys run with less scrutiny, less, uh, but, but I don't know, maybe it makes for more competition and at more breadth. Yes. And, and also, I mean, for us here in Cape Town, um, Cape Town Marathon is vying for a position as one of those world majors amongst other three other races. And what they're up against is these these big money races. Yeah, and I guess to currency. some extent they will hope, hopefully this plays the role hmm. in terms of making it a little bit more equitable for yeah. smaller events. But uh, who knows? Yeah. Hmm. Anyway, yeah, we, we can we can talk about this. I guess guess all day, and uh, we'd love to know your thoughts. Let us know what you think about the surge in top performances from triathletes to marathon runners to anybody that can walk on two legs. Um, interesting as well on this on the on the on the on the side of uh, cycling at the moment, and this is something I've been looking at on various cycling forums in the last couple of weeks. The World Gravel Championships were held, I think, two weeks ago now. And there has been a lot of talk about, was it really gravel? I think 47% of the course was either on hard pack or on uh, on tar. And, of course, the winner, Gianni Vimish, was riding a road bike. Um, it was well-known, Metafanapool was also riding on a road bike. So the gravel riders were saying, was it really a gravel race? And the road bikers were saying, well, the big names were there and it was the first time they had a gravel championships. My, my view of it, having watched it, it, it certainly was a race that suited the road riders. Mm. It wasn't gravel at all. I think it was 50% gravel, but it wasn't technical enough to be a gravel race. And Nathan Haas, who was a former pro, who's now become sort of a, a well-known gravel racer, he commented on a blog that he wrote for Cycling News where he talked a bit about the fact that all the gravel riders arrived, and then suddenly the big names, Peter Sagan, Matteo van der Poel, Vermeesh, those kind of guys, and Daniel Oss, who was second in the gravel championships. When they arrived, they were all put on the front row because they had UCR rankings. All the gravel riders who can't really get UCR rankings because there aren't enough events were second and third and fourth row. So he was saying that, it was that this race had been hijacked by these pro riders who'd come along. They'd taken on an event which suited them absolutely perfectly. A gravel rider was nowhere in sight, and the pro riders won. Lance Armstrong came along, in a, and I saw him commenting on a tweet um, on one of the Instagram posts where somebody said, you know, all the world tour pros dominate, and he just went, duh, to suggest that, of course, they did because they're the best riders in the world. So they must have dominated because they're the strongest. Mm. Your thoughts? Did you watch it? I'd love to know <laughs> what you think of that. I watched it, and I saw I saw the last sort of two hours of it. 100K, well, no, it wouldn't have been that much, sort of 70Ks. And I, it was a disappointing broadcast. Because the coverage wasn't good. No. Because I think it's it's technically obviously quite difficult to film a race where they go off road. You can't put motorbikes on as much as 
in the Tour de France and so on. So we missed, for instance, the race's decisive move. We had two guys in the front for 140K, yeah. and with 10 to go, they split. For mission loss. And yeah. we were looking at pictures of a castle. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and it was a lovely castle. And there was no rewind. And there was no footage of the actual, because... Presumably, Vermeer attacked. It wasn't mm. that us skidded around a corner and lost thirty meters, and that was the that was the anyway. We don't know. So, yeah, underwhelming broadcast. But the, the same as you, is I I had the thought is, imagine a mountain bike race won by a guy on a gravel bike. Mm. Would that feel authentic? Mm. Well, no. Well, then neither does this, right? Yeah. And so, gravel to me looks like more of what we saw in the U.S. when, for instance, Matt Beers went over there. And he raced in that, uh, what's that? It's like 270K and they finished in the mud and everyone was, everyone was painted yeah, with mud. Unbound and all that's that. That's the one. Thank yeah. you for yeah. Yeah. The old my, dirty Kansas. That's the one. Yeah. Now, I don't know. Like, they're obviously, they're obviously trying to capitalize on the success of gravel, but yeah. this doesn't seem like the way it's going to do it. No. And interestingly, the commentators were talking about it a lot. In part because the footage, they had to talk about something because a lot of the time we couldn't see the riders. Mm, mm. <laughs> the castle, you could only comment so many times on the lovely the castle was. Nice turret. <laughs> but but they were they were commenting a lot. in and, and I mean, you know the golden rule in the media is do not criticize the product. Yes. And so reading between the lines or hearing between the lines, my impression was that they weren't blown away by this thing either. Mm. It just felt like a kind of B-grade world champs. Yes. To me. Road champs. Yeah. That's what it felt like. Yeah. 100%. I get what they're trying to do and it's cool, but they've got to do better than that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. So if you're a gravel rider or you follow cycling intently, I'd love to know what uh, you think of that as well, because that is uh, an area which I feel quite strongly they could do a lot better in the UCI. Mm. As you say, I think it's a great thing. They're just trying to capitalize on it, bring in their big names. And what was interesting is that most of them, and even Nathan Haas talks about it in the column that he wrote, he talks about the fact that most of those pros that pitched up on the day had never ridden a gravel bike in a race before. So they were feeling confident enough to be competitive, having never competed in gravel before. Yeah. And there is something wrong with that because you shouldn't be able to, even if you're a world tour rider, you shouldn't be able to be competitive with gravel specialists who are spending most of their time on gravel bikes because there is a technical aspect to gravel riding. Yes, and yeah. there's a there's an aspect to the equipment because yeah. I saw a lot of people on social media saying, "Well, you see, you don't need a gravel bike." Yes, <laughs> and so then people, what's the big deal? What's Why do I need two bikes? Bike? Just yeah. put a put slightly fatter tires mm. on your road bike, and off you go. Yeah. Happy days. Yeah. So yeah, I, underwhelming, but I suppose yeah. you've got to start somewhere. Yeah, and maybe they'll figure it out. But I do think the gravel community is quite different, and they're not going to capture them. If they don't make certain concessions to the the spirit of gravel, as it yeah. I hate that yeah. word, but it's it's, yeah, no, it's, it's real. Absolutely. Yeah. Last thing. Last thing that caught my eye, mm. and this was an interesting one that I wanted to. I forgot to tell you before we. we oh, we haven't even planned this one. You're going to mention no. No, no, no. This is, <laughs> so I'm sitting on the plane the other day because I was flying to uh, Switzerland for cycling, and no work to do because it's a no work holiday. Mm. So I'm watching the news, the Queen's funeral. Okay, and I'm by no means a royalist. I don't think this is one of those royal puns. But on CNN, BBC, and Sky, I heard pundits say that this must be the most watched live event in history, which seemed ridiculously overblown and over the top to me, like mm-hmm. much of that week was. Mm-hmm. And then two weeks later, I was sitting in Portugal with my mates, having finished that cycle thing, and Roger Federer had just retired. And one of them, Leon, said, Roger Federer has probably been watched live more than any other sports person. 
And so in my head, I put these two things together and I come up with this question and I'm putting it to you. <laughs> which which sportsman, because it's not it's not going to be Federer, I don't think. Which sportsman do you reckon has been seen live more than any other in history? Live now. So not, yes. not on TV, live. And actually, patrons, Twitter followers, Instagram, tell me who you think it is. I'm not going to tell you now, next time. Tell do you, you know the answer to this question then? No, but we spoke about it for half an hour and it's one of those fun questions where you can say, hmm... Think about good, all the sports, think question. about all the events and where, what sport and which athlete would produce the most watched human in the history of sport live? Mm. I would guess live American footballer. Who's the well-known, the most well-known American footballer? I would guess. I'll think about it now. I'll tell you why it's probably not. It's because they don't play enough. Yeah. 16 matches a year. In so the then you have to go down the soccer route, I guess. You know, maybe, maybe. Beckham, those kind of guys. Think about yeah. it and tell yeah. us. You, yeah. tell, you tell us as well, patrons. Who is the most yeah. watched sports person in history? I want to say Lionel Messi, just because I'm putting, want to put a name out there. His name came up in our com- But we, we honestly, we chat about this all through yeah. one of the best Portuguese dishes I've ever had. But this was the, this was the topic. <laughs> this is the best conversation you've had. I've subsequently sent it to a number of mates, and it's been a good source of conversation. I think it's so, a great question. Yeah, yes. so go nuts. Tell us who you think it is. I think is. we must just put that on our social media outside the podcast as well, just ask yeah. our, and our patron supporters as well. Yeah. Uh, my answer will surprise you, and it's a bit mm. of a loophole. Right. But I'll tell it to you next time. Okay, cool. Looking forward to that. Mm. Right, so let's get on to the subject of hand of our podcast today. And uh, as I suggested at the start of this uh, podcast, that uh, we have a very special story to tell. And it's uh, a story that when I first heard it from Ross and and we were discussing it for our podcast, it seemed like a story about integrity of sport, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what it turned out to be is this incredible soap opera of sports scientists who – find data, they interpret it differently, there is debate, and there is controversy. And um, we don't want to give it too much away because we get into detail with our guest today, but we're going to introduce you to a guy called Peter Wayant, who is the Professor of Adopted Physiology and Biomechanics at Southern Methodist University in Dallas and Texas. Now, Ross, you'll be able to give us a bit more detail, but this is a man who knows about biomechanics probably better than most in the world. He's a world authority. Especially running and particularly within running sprint biomechanics. He's he's the guy. Mm. That's how I got into this. Was fifteen years ago maybe now, someone, Oscar Pistorius, <laughs> wanted insights and support on the biomechanics of sprinting, and Peter Wayne was the place he went to because mm. he was the expert. And he's he's only developed that in the last fifteen years, yeah. Mm. So the interesting, the story we're going to be talking about is the process of the testing of people like Ospistorius, whether there was an advantage for him running with blades, whether there was a disadvantage, whether he should be able to compete in able-bodied events. And of course, this new athlete, Blake Leeper, who's now come along as a second iteration of Oscar Pistorius, mm. who's now asking the scientific community the same type of questions. Correct. And it's an interesting one because it seems so clear-cut when you look at the science. But the story is not as clear cut as that, is it? No, and it's um, and you know if you go back to the beginning, fifteen year ago, years ago, it wasn't clear cut because there'd never been an Oscar Pistorius. Mm. So the only basis on which we could evaluate his claims, his application to run against able-bodied athletes, was theoretical. And then it was Peter Wayand, among others, who developed the first data set. And I think the data was very clear. And Peter will explain that data to us, mm. and maybe you will as well. Maybe you'll disagree. But because it's an emotive issue and because there are 
forces, and they're not necessarily nefarious, they're emotive issues. People mm. want the likes of Pistorius. He became a darling of the Olympics in 2012 because people want that kind of story. Mm. Blake Leeper, similarly, there is a there is a significant enough push, emotive push for people like Blake Leeper to run in able-bodied competitions. Mm. So now what you have is science on the table and people who should respect that science and interpret and maybe not agree on all of it, but at least recognize it, but who are, let's call them otherwise, <laughs> incentivized and motivated and yeah. so you get eventually a transition from science into advocacy now the, the the biggest problem is and where i think this is fascinating is that at some point it becomes legal because there's a claim now to a court mm -hmm. the court of arbitration of sports it was uh, the world athletics had a mechanical aids panel but there's a legal argument now that science has to inform and then what you get is adversarial science so now you've got scientific advoc advocacy and adversarial scientists. Mm. And that combination starts to become very difficult to tease apart and untangle. And Peter Weyand found himself on what I think is the wrong end of some of those arguments because he is a guy. You know, Peter Weyand and I met, quote unquote, met in the way that many people meet online, um, email then social media. And then eventually in 2017, I spent a week in Dallas and visited his lab. And he is one of the most robust, precise, scientifically rigorous thinkers I've come across. Mm. You know, he has a unflinching, uncompromising belief in the scientific process. And if that sounds cryptic, listen to the interview. <laughs> I think it'll come across. Do you agree? I agree. Yeah. <laughs> and he's got like the, the scientific integrity is, is Peter Wand. Yeah. And I think he's been really put out by what's happened here because this has been a story in which that integrity, his integrity has been challenged, I believe, unfairly. And it's become, yeah, and it's, it's become an unpleasant fight. Uh, it's, it, obviously, it's adversarial, mm. but not like this. Yeah. Well, I hope you find the story with Peter Wayans one of the most intriguing and fascinating stories that I did. Right, so Peter, welcome to the Science of Sport podcast. Um, this is a story that we're going to get into today, which for me as a journalist is one of conspiracies. There is uh, ethical issues in play. There is um, uh, one side of the river and the other side of the river. And it's, it's, it's to some extent, having read so much about it in the last couple of days, building up to this podcast, I'm still a bit unsure as to all the issues involved. And I know that you and Ross are going to get into some of the nitty gritty. So excuse me for asking some of the stupid questions as we go along, but essentially what we're going to get stuck in today is talking about specifically the, the, the research project that you um, released earlier this year in August this year around Blake Leeper. Now, for those of you um, that have listened to this podcast, we've discussed Blake Leeper in the past, a Paralympic athlete. Um, he's got prosthetic limbs, and obviously there's been a huge amount of research and uh, stuff done around whether he has an advantage with those prosthetic limbs on versus whether he doesn't have an advantage. And of course, for those of us living in South Africa, Oscar Pistorius was obviously a big um, a big name in the world of uh, Paralympic sport back in the late 2000s. And uh, there was also some of the discussions around that. But Roscoe, maybe I can come to you first before we get to Peter to kind of give us a bit of background as to wh where we are now with Blake Leeper mm. on the background of where Oscar Pistorius was and came from. Yeah, so the, the paper you referred to was published in the Royal Society um, and Wayne Peter's the, the lead author on it. Matthew Bundle is a colleague of Peter's who's the senior author. 
It's called, and I like papers that make a statement, and this is literally this. It says, artificially long legs directly enhance long sprint running performance. It was written in part as a response to a paper by Beck et al. And we're going to get into all these because, as you say, this is like a movie and we're going to meet the characters <laughs> and we're going to understand their personalities as we go. When I saw this back in August, I thought, oh, hang on, here's the sequel. Because back in 2008, 9, 10, it was around that time, the scientific research had come out around Oscar Pistorius, who you've mentioned. Mm. And Peter was involved in that. So that's really where the story begins. And now we're seeing the second installment where it's quite clear that there are two groups on opposite sides of this issue, one arguing for in enhancements of performance and performance advantages, Peter's group, and the other arguing against it, saying that we should include double amputees on prosthetic limbs in the able-bodied Olympics and able-bodied athletics events because there's no advantage. Now, you, you spoke about two sides and opposite two two camps on opposite sides of the river. The river is the science. So <laughs> in between these two camps, there's this really fascinating research. What makes a sprinter fast? What limits sprint performance? And it's actually, and I'm sure Peter would agree, part of the reason for the fascination of this is because if you can understand this, you'll understand sprinting a little bit better. And if we go all the way back to Oscar Pistorius and the moment that he first walks into Peter's lab in Dallas, which which is an I've been there and we actually we'll try and provide some video of the setup that Peter used to test these athletes. Great facility. What was it that we were looking at? What did it find? And where are we now? As for where we are now, we have Blake Leeper not allowed to use his prosthetic limbs to compete because they've been deemed to provide an advantage. And that's been done in three separate trials. Peter can interject if I get this wrong. First CAS, round one. Then that's the Court of Arbitration for Sport. Right. Yeah. So that's who he went to because he was not allowed to use these blades in the first instance. He lost that appeal. He then goes to a second, well, sort of a subcommittee of world athletics called the, uh, Peter, help me out here. It's a mechanical, mechanical AIDS, AIDS review panel. panel. Mm. Mechanical AIDS review panel round two effectively appeals that to CAS and it's also rejected. So in June 2021, Leeper's second appeal to CAS was rejected. And that's, that research that led to those three decisions is the subject of what Peter wrote most When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Recently. Is that a fair summary, Peter, of uh, where you see the history of your, your, your work in this space? Yeah, no. So that's great on the timeline. And it's important to, to lay that out because in, in many respects, the understanding of these issues scientifically and, and generally is from Pistorius forward. It really is all the, the same story. Mm. Um, and so uh, that background is is really critical and the audience should keep in mind uh, with Pistorius, the public interest really dipped once he won his eligibility hearing and, and competed. And the public was left with an impression that, oh, the blades don't provide advantage because they wouldn't have made him eligible otherwise. And that wasn't really the case. And the, the science did get introduced into the court later in ways that they were on the correct issues and they really weren't with Pistorius, which right. was why he was yeah. el eligible, even though he was advantaged. So I think it's worth going back to that time, you know, trip into episode one of the story. And 
Looking at the situation 2008-9, Pistorius made an appeal to compete. At that point, he wanted to get to London Olympic Games. Yeah. The policy and for the listeners, we just make it clear he wants to get to London Olympics as in an able-bodied category. Right. That's what he wants to do. Because he'd sort of come onto the scene as a youngster, I think in 2004, as a high school student, and said, hang on, this guy is running times that might very well make him competitive in able-bodied events. And then some people, and I was one of them, said, hang on a moment here. Like, I know this is going to sound absolutely absurd, but maybe those carbon fiber limbs aren't actually a disadvantage. What if they're an advantage? And World Athletics felt that they would be. Now, they didn't have at that time a very sound or rigorous, robust, evidence-based policy, but they didn't allow mechanical aids. That was the wording they used. And so Pistorius first went to Germany, and he was tested in the lab of a biomechanist called Peter Buchemann, who, and, and this is where I'd, I'd rather have Peter Wayen step in, because he'll be far more familiar with this than I am all these years later. But Brucherman produced a paper that suggested that there was an advantage, and he assessed more on the metabolic side of sprinting Pistorius challenged that and that was where Peter Wayand and a group of collaborators came in Peter do you want to maybe just pick up and explain how you came to meet mm. and be involved with Pistorius back then so there, there was fascination with what he was doing because there was no amputee before him that ran those kinds of times. So he was a source of intrigue in the athletics community but also in the scientific community and so uh when he, I became involved, uh, I, I had, uh, Hugh Her has been a colleague of mine. We worked down the hall from one another at, at Harvard when uh, we were both there uh, early in our scientific career. So I reached out to Hugh and I had reached out to Matt Bundle, who I did a lot of mechanics performance work with previously and said, hey, do you want to see if there's an opportunity to get, get involved to do scientific work? This was after Oscar Pistorius had gone to Cologne and, and been tested by uh, Peter Bergerman's group there, which is a, is a very strong uh, biomechanics group. Um, so it ended up that with that opportunity came in the form uh, of working on behalf of his appeal with his attorneys. And we were tasked with two things. They chose us among a number of groups. Uh, there was, there was a, um, there was a period of time where Pistorius and his management team were looking for scientists to help with the appeal, as you would expect. And and, and in fact, mm -hmm. sorry to interrupt, I was one of the people they contacted. I couldn't believe it. I said, I said to him, have you not done your research? You know, I'm writing papers saying you shouldn't participate. But they were, they were literally going door to door and saying, can you test us to clear us in order to compete at the Olympic Games? Mm. So I guess you said no, Ross. <laughs> well, <laughs> I said I'd, I'd happily do it, but I don't think it's uh, in either of our best interests. Uh, so, I so mean, I would have had the capabilities. I, I didn't have the knowledge anyway to do it lab-wise. So, I'm yeah. glad it ended up with Peter. So we were excited just to, to learn because it's a massive opportunity. This is somebody who can, you know, pick whatever, pick the legs that they're using. And so it was done. So we were tasked with two things that, you know, there were multiple groups the attorneys could have chose. They ended up choosing the group of myself, Matt Bundle, Hugh Herr, and then Roger Crom and some junior scientists, Selena Grabowski got involved. And, uh, so we were tasked with evaluating the scientific validity of, of the work that had been done. And some of that was acquired on the track during um, some uh, some track meets that World Athletics had put on. Uh, and some of it was was the experimental work that the, that had been done in, in, in Cologne. And then we did additional testing of, of our own. So uh, really, it was two things. It was our, our original testing and the evaluation of the pre-existing data. Those were, those were our tasks. Well, hmm. what's, what's interesting, Peter, what, what, before you did that testing on Oscar back then, what were your initial, what were your thoughts about whether you had an advantage or not? Did you have any inkling as to what the results might, might uh, realize? 
No, and that's a really good question, Mike. So I had said before we started that I did not expect to get a clear answer because he's a unique individual. There's only there's only one of them, him. And in order to to have you know strong evidence that he actually was advantaged, he would number one have to be very different in in terms of his gait gate biomechanics. Number two, those differences would have to be very clearly linked to his limbs. And number three, they would have to be advantageous. And before we tested him, I did not think that all those things would line up. I thought we would learn a lot about the science. That was my driving interest. Uh, I didn't think we would get a, a clear answer. Uh, but of course, we ended up getting a clear answer. See, but that's why Peter was the right guy to do it. Yeah. Because, because, because in my opinion, having seen what Brueggemann found in Cologne, and I don't want to go into massive detail because there's better detail coming. It was, he used less oxygen to run at sub-maximal speeds than able-bodied runners. And his energy return from the carbon fiber limbs was measured slightly higher, limitations notwithstanding, than Achilles tendons were. So the properties were different. And to me, that kind of confirmed a prediction that you'd make around why they might be advantageous. But it was, he, he found himself going, is the point, to a lab where there was no preconceived idea, at least from Peter's side, yeah. around what would happen. So just, just on that your assessment of the Brueggemann research, I know you believe that they do good research, but you're also a man whose who's model of sprint performance doesn't put massive stock into the energetics. It's for you, it's mechanics more, right? It is, you know, particularly on the short end, it's it's all mechanics. There's there's energy to, to spare and to burn for these sprinters and they don't try to save it. So we use the analogy of, you know, if you're trying to build a, an automobile to win a drag race, you don't care about economy. You don't care about saving energy. Mm. Just one huge horsepower, right? So, uh, Brueggemann's group is really—they're really quite good, and their facilities are are, are excellent. But the diff—it went off the track with with Pistorius because of what they were tasked to do. So, the the preconceptions on, on the science before he was even tested went to those energy issues that you've identified, Ross. And mm. and and what happened for a long time in the scientific literature was that uh, the endurance performance literature, where you can explain very well what performance outcomes are in terms of energy supply and demand, it just trickled down because we didn't really have good information about the mechanical determinants of sprinting. So in essence, the IAF, the Track Federation, focused the German group on the wrong issues. And that that was the single reason why Pistorius ultimately became eligible because the entire cast hearing was largely misfocused. It was on issues that didn't really matter much at all for sprinting. Yeah, so on that note, because remember the cast hearing now comes after and after Peter Wayand and her and Krams tested him. Did you did you feel that the scope of what you'd been asked to do was appropriate from the start? Or did did any concerns around that only become apparent to you later on? So my interests going in were really largely scientific opportunity. And but I was also grateful on another level. It was clear from the proceedings that Pistorius's application to the International Track Federation, the IAAF, had not been handled properly. And this is in the, the ruling that came out of the Pistorius CAS hearing that that uh, I think the wording of the, the panel was that they didn't, uh, the IAF did not comport itself um, as a, an international sporting body should. So for example, they, they sent out, um, after the Brueggemann report, they sent out, they solicited votes on the vo voting members, whether he could be eligible or not. And they, one of the things that they did was if they didn't receive a vote back they counted it as a no 
So you could imagine. Yeah. And there's more in there that made it really look and feel like, hey, they stacked the deck against this guy. So on a, on a personal level, you know, the science was my compelling motivation. But on a personal level, I also felt that he hadn't been dealt with fairly um, so that this appeal was was important for the issues. It was important that he got his fair shake, whether that is he should run or he should not. And Matt Bundle and I have always been agnostic about that. So going into those tests. Um, you know, we went through the standard procedures that you would with informed consent and, of course, our ethical obligation to um, reach conclusions that were data-based. And I said that. That was the first thing when, my, when I consented, Oscar. I said, I can't tell you how this is going to come out. What I can tell you is that my obligation is to tell the truth about what these data say. And he understood that and accepted it and signed away. So from that point, um, we had the evaluation of the existing report that had already gone in and on which he'd been disqualified or banned. Um, but I, But... I did what I do as a scientist, which was to take measurements. And I really wanted to figure out the nuts and bolts of, you know, how, how does he sprint as fast as he does on these limbs? So we also did that. But the most important mechanical data were not part of that original CAS hearing because they happened mm. under, under the conformed incent and, and an existing performance protocol that I had at that time. Right. And that's that mechanical data is what I want to sort of segue into. Because for me, that's yeah. also the really fascinating thing. I know many of you listening to this might not be necessarily concerned with prosthetic limbs and amputee sprinters but some of the stuff you argued eventually when you made this case publicly around the i found one of the most fascinating things i've ever read and the question then is this is what protocol did you use and what was it about pistorius that jumped out at you that led you to conclude that there was an advantage then let's answer that then we'll get to why that never made its way to cash and when you're saying protocol what in other words how did they test yeah what did you do he comes to the lab what's on the what's on the agenda that was my next question yeah so we had a standardized protocol for max sprint tests at that time. We developed it a number about a decade earlier. And what we do is we we put runners on a high speed treadmill that's force instrumented, so we can um, measure their forcefulness on the ground. And they we run them is a discontinuous test, so we run them. We start very slow. We start at a jog. We we set the treadmill at a fixed speed. Um, we we tell them to hop on the treadmill. They hop on at that fixed. speed. They have to get down eight steps without moving backward on the belt. We give them a full recovery. We go to the next step. So we do that through a series of uh, until of speeds, faster and faster, progressive, until we get to a failure speed. So we go until we reach a speed that the athlete cannot get onto the belt, get down eight steps without drifting backward more than, than 20 centimeters. And we usually go to failure twice to make sure that we've measured um, that, that the last successful attempt was, was indeed their top speed. And so we'd had that protocol for some time and we'd also ha- had developed data sets and ability to predict longer sprint performances from that top speed measure and those they're, they're very uh, it's a very tight determinant of what the athletes do on the track so we did that same protocol with with pistorius and to go a little bit further into what the the prior work had shown uh, our first, the first time we used this protocol was a study we published in Journal of Applied Physiology in 2000, uh, and what we found was that the that the the timing at top at top speeds we tested people who were very fast, intermediate, and and not so fast, but all of whom were athletic and accustomed to running. And so with that approach, we got a nearly twofold difference in the top speed speeds. And by these- the way, so, so just to interrupt, mm-hmm. you know, like everyone's run on a treadmill, and you know when you put a treadmill up to 20k an hour. It's fast. Mm-hmm. It's aggressive. It feels quite apocalyptic. Double it for some of these athletes, right? Because we're talking speeds here in excess of 10 meters a second. Yeah. It, and some it's, of them it, will be 11, 11, 12 ish. And so this mm-hmm. is quite something to behold doing these tests. They really are. 
like as I say, hopefully Peter can provide us with some video because they're pretty cool to watch. <laughs> but anyway, I, I just wanted to say that because it's it's fun. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I agree. I mean, these tests are they're uh, they're bang bang and they're very intense. So, listeners that may be interested, there's quite a lot of footage on our our YouTube channel. It's Locomotor Lab, SMU, all one word, and you can see them in real time in slow motion. And um, they're not dull. I mean, and you really have to pay attention because things happen so quick. So they're they're quite intense, and there's a, there's just a lot of energy in the room when these tests go on. Mm. Uh, so the important science that came out uh, of the test, particularly in this the paper, the 2000 paper in Journal of Applied Phys was that uh, the timing in the air for these different runners, whether they're slow, fast, or intermediate, the time in between steps, and then the time to pick up one limb and put it back down for the next step. So right limb up from this running surface in the first instant to right limb down first instance, what we call a reposition or swing time. Both of those timing variables are essentially invariant or very close. So in other words, slow pokes can pick up their leg and put it down for their the next step when they're at their top speed in the same amount of time that, that Usain Bolt does essentially. And that time is just over a third of a second uh, and it's not related to top speed. So these different individuals at top speed all take the same amount of time. So that was a non-intuitive finding. You would think the fast people would do it in less time, but they don't. And what the differentiator is, is how forceful these athletes are in relation to their body mass on the ground. So the more forceful they can be, the harder they can hit the surface, they're up and they're down and back up in a shorter period of time. And, and you have to be down and up in very short periods of time to be able to sprint fast. There's, there's no other way to do it. Well, so, so this is the, this is the thing I found most fascinating when I read this, I was, I, it was amazing to me to think that me hauling a piano down a track was moving my legs at the same speed as the fastest humans ever. Yes. But running fifty percent, and I'm being charitable, slower than they were. I think I think it was amazing to think that you, no matter who you are, it, the time it takes you is not the differentiator to, to reposition your limb. All the action is what happens on the ground. Now the question yeah, is, that's right. so 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 the the prerogative for a sprinter is how fast can I apply peak force to the ground? Is that correct? It it is yes. Right. So why do you talk about force and not power? Oh, well, uh, good question, Ross. So by scientific definition, um, power is the rate at which um, work is performed and work is force times distance. All right. So yeah. uh, the, the, but the distance has to be a distance through which a body or some other external object is displaced. Mm -hmm. So for, and this is an important, this is an important concept. So for level ground, steady speed running, the big forces go straight down into the track, but over time, so they're vertical in nature, they're the vertical axis. Over time, the body doesn't go up or down. It comes back to the same place over and over. So there's the, the amount of work performed during level running is either very small or functionally zero if you ignore a little bit of wind resistance and whatever you lose to friction. Mm -hmm. Both of those are really small. So level running at a constant speed involves almost no work. So if there's no rate at which work is being done, there's also no power. Okay. So, I mean, just, I mean, I know that people listening to this will probably ask this question. You talked about running on treadmills and measuring force. Obviously one of the things when it comes to prosthetic limbs is how they start a race. So in other words, the acceleration is a key. Obviously we know that they are slower out of the blocks than normal able-bodied athletes. Um, is it is it is it fair to say that you also tested that? 
So for Pistorius, we did we did not do any direct acceleration testing. We did do some track work of over 100 meters. You know, had them do full blast 100 meters. Uh, it wasn't a core part of, of of what we needed to do, or the way the arguments eventually scientifically that, that they came out. So if you take and the reason for that was his advantages were so massive at the high end that even if he even if he lost a full second in in the first in the acceleration phase of a, say a 400 meter race, it didn't matter because the other advantages were, were so large. Yeah. So I feel like we skipped a key here because now we're talking about advantages to Pistorius. So with, with what you've just explained in mind that the, the determinant of sprint performance is the ability to apply force to the ground while on it. What was it about Pistorius that jumped out at you as being so different that you recognized advantage? It, it did jump out. So that's a good framing of that question, Ross. So as soon as we did the, the top speed test with Pistorius on the treadmill, his maximum that we measured was 10.8 meters per second, which is very fast in line with the other 400 meter runners that he was running, the level at which he was running at that time. Uh, but his limb repositioning times were super short, far shorter than anything we'd ever seen. So for for the 400 meter athletes of his ability, the limb repositioning times would typically come in at 0.35 seconds. Pistorius was at 0.284. So we'd never seen, he was off the charts. We had never seen anything close to it. And so his ability to reposition limbs that were very light in very short periods of time meant that he could be on the ground most of the time and in the air only a little bit. So what it did was it reduced his force requirement for running. So in, a, in, in an intact limb athlete that runs 10.8 meters per second on the, on the treadmill, we would typically see uh, a, an average force during the contact phase of 2.1 body weights at least. Uh, for Pistorius, it was 1.8. And that three tenths of one body weight is, makes a difference of more than two and a half meters per second on how fast somebody can typically run if their timing parameters are normal. And does it does it does it follow then that in order to run at that ten point eight, he was he needed less? And I don't know what the correct word is here, so I'll I'll try this athleticism. Yeah, that's fair. So for sprinting, athleticism comes down to forcefulness on the right. ground in relation to body weight. So Pistorius's forcefulness on the ground was that of a mediocre or relatively slow person. And so in effect, what's happened here is that he he's able to sprint in a totally different way. He's able to, he's able to reposition the limbs in a way that no human has ever been able to, which has in turn created for him more time to spend on the ground, <laughs> which in turn means less force required on the ground and therefore the ability to run elite times at sub-elite athleticism. Does does that make sense to you, Mike? It makes sense to me. I want to know if Peter agrees with that summation. That was was perfectly stated, Ross. So what it does, he's so massively enhanced that those those blades take somebody who who would be, you know, a a, a so-so, you know, high school sprinter and turn them into a world-class athlete. Right. And that's 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 massive, right? So, So when you notice that and you're standing there, well, I suppose it's not, you don't notice it with your naked eye, but you in fact actually let me ask you this could you see this difference in someone so if if someone's limb repositioning times are this different and they're spending a little bit longer on the ground as a consequence is it noticeable to you as a as a trained eye or is you need do you need high speed tech to see it so someone like myself that knows exactly what to look for in real time probably not but close so if we just had standard television footage that's 
in, in slow motion, you could see that he's down most of the time and all the elite sprinters are in the air most of the time. Pistorius was on the ground most of the time. Hmm. Okay. So now, so in, other I, words, he, so in other words, he has a high cadence. Is that, is that, well, no, he doesn't. No, he doesn't because you see the cadence at the end is this function of time on the ground plus time in the air. Cause it's, it's, right. it's, a, it's a, it's a gestalt. It's a, it's a holistic collection of everything, right? But cadence. he's turning over his legs at a higher rate than a normal yeah, so body. Which his legs are moving is different from cadence. Right. Cause cadence also includes the time on the ground. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'm just trying to get a concept of in my mind's eye, what, what is the advantage? So the advantage is being able to recycle his legs faster than an able-bodied athlete. Which because has the knock-on effect of meaning more time on the ground, which has the knock-on effect of meaning less force required in order to run the same right. speed as, as, as elite athletes. Okay. So the athletic yeah. limit is, is, is shifted lower to him. Yeah. And that, that was perfectly stated, Ross. And I would take it just a little bit further. So it, it is the, the time in the air versus the time on the ground that reduces his force requirement for speed. Mm. The other thing that the blades did, uh, and this is about equal in, in importance, is that the curvature on the bottom portion of, of, the, of Pistorius's blade allows him to roll forward mm. uh, on that blade and stretch out his time on the ground. So he elongates time on the ground and he, because of the rolling on the curve, curve bottom of the blade. And then he reduces the time in the air because he can reposition them so, so rapidly in such a short mm. period of time. And the two of those things knock down his force in, enormously in terms of athletics uh, and sprinting ability, you know, three, t three tenths of a, of a, of the body's weight makes a massive difference for speed. Mm. So those two things together left him massively enhanced. So you're both saying that the advantage is not about the the spring effect of these carbon blades. Does that is that is not it's not a consequence of his of his enhancement? Because I always thought it was about the springiness of the blades that could push him forward, and it's almost like being propelled forward like you would be on a pogo stick. Yes, and that's a very reasonable takeaway from the first cast hearing, Mike, because mm. the, the track federation uh, made the case on how oh, he uses less energy to run. And then part of that was them trying to advance an argument that those blades are better springs than a human leg is. And there, there was some data. It's very hard to do those measurements in a one-to-one -one comparison. But part of the reason that Pistorius won that appeal was that when the science um, gets fleshed out in these these processes they call hot tubs it's kind of like a free-for-all scientifically that that the cast does to try to get the issue sorted out what do you agree on what do you not agree on um that the best comparison was between uh an energy test that you can do with a blade uh in, in, in instrumentation with just the blade itself you can put mm -hmm. energy in and see how much comes back out and if you know perfect energy return is 100%. If you do that with human tendons, the human tendons are, are similar in energy return to the carbon fiber blades. And that was in the end, what the CAS accepted in the Pistorius hearing, that there wasn't a demonstrable energy return advantage. And that was part of the reason that he won that appeal. I will also say though, because you used the word pogo stick here as well. And I remember at the time, specifically, the media often was quoting people saying the same thing is he might as well be on a pogo stick. And I remember thinking, like, if that was the case, you'd see it. Imagine a guy literally on a pogo stick bouncing around the track. It'd be obvious, right? So you, you'd, you'd see, if his stride length was four meters long because he was running on springs, no one would need testing. No? Yes, because it would be it's visually... So, it would be so visually obvious. So, right. so it was quite clear that whatever the outcome was, was subtle enough that it, it's, it's, it, it shouldn't have been equated to, like, a pogo stick. 
And I think it's, it speaks to maybe a misunderstanding of what spring and energy return even does. I mean, it's mm. the same thing that came up again with the shoes. It's like Elliot Kipchoge isn't breaking the world record with a three-meter step because of his shoes. He's running with the same biomechanics, but at a lower, in, in his case, it's endurance, right? Energy cost. So that's just as an aside. Is I think they, they, they did, fr- the point is they framed it wrong, I think, from the start. Yeah. But what, what's then important is that the stuff that Peter's been talking about now never made it to Cass because they'd framed it more narrowly to exclude this stuff. And I assume, Peter, that you couldn't then introduce this to the process so that the, the panel at CAS could then hear about these sources of advantage. So the truth didn't come out. Is that right? Yeah, I, I do think that the the framing, as you noted, Ross, of the Pistorius hearing was not scientifically sound. They focused on the wrong issues. So the 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 data that showed that he had an advantage, essentially, he was accused of having an advantage he didn't have. He had a different advantage that the court <laughs> didn't hear didn't hear about. Now, what I'd like to know is, you're part of a team that's testing him here, and you've now made this discovery, and he's so different, his limb positioning, and it's obvious to you. What's the conversation like with your colleagues about that? Do you remember what it was like? Was there significant disagreement from the very first moment, or did it take a while for it to emerge in academic discourse? I think it's safe to say I I do remember those conversations. (laughs) Um, So we looked, you know, we just did our standard data reduction from the top speed test and bam, there it was. And it, it was unavoidable. It's like, oh, wow, he's hugely different. Uh, look at that. He's got a massive advantage. So we didn't, you know, the publishing part, you know, as, as you've been through the the legal proceedings, Ross, you know that that you can't really publish anything until it's all over. So the the write up, like what, how do we present this part of the conversation didn't happen until Pistorius's appeal hearing was over. But in the first conversation we had sort of post cast, you know, Matt Bundle and I said, hey, look, it's really obvious. He's got a massive advantage uh, and the, the initial reaction was just dead silence uh for a long time and, and kind of like okay and that and the conversation basically and then from that point forward we had weekly meetings and then from in those weekly meetings um the unwillingness to accept that conclusion came forward starting like a week later and um and the, yeah and it, and it went on and on and so we we crafted uh, the compromise, you know, with people on the other part of the team saying it's either unclear or he doesn't have an advantage. Um, we said, okay, we need to find a way to publish the full data set together. And, and this was really important because there were junior scientists working on the project. It was important for their careers. They all, we all needed our, to show our productivity from this. We couldn't just say, oh, we're not going to, no, we're not going to publish. That wasn't an option. Wasn't fair to the people that worked on it. And also the public needed to know this, the science needed to come out. So what we did was, okay, we'll all publish the data set together um, without tackling the advantage, non-advantage conclusion. We just said, is he different or is he not on these parameters? And then if that gets accepted, the Journal of Applied Physiology has a debate style format called the point counterpoint where you can take opposite points of view and and present your arguments in a point a counterpoint and and rebuttals so we crafted that as a solution um, to get everybody credit to get the data out and for us to all put our scientific points of view forward right so that paper was published in 2009 which was probably do you remember how long after the CAS hearing and decision I think it was 18 months. So I think the cast hearing was May of 08. And I think the point counterpoint hit roughly November of 09. 
Right, so this comes out first. Now, this is a collective piece of work, seven authors in total, if I'm counting correctly. Peter Wayne, senior author, Hugh Hur at the back end, Bundle, Grabowski, Roger Cram, called The Fastest Run on Artificial Legs, Different Limbs, Similar Function, question mark. Now, with the benefit of hindsight, you can see why the title is framed in this questioning way. And so and this was a compromise paper that was really designed to tee up a debate by, by Peter's telling. If I, would you agree with that, Peter? Yeah, so we wanted the whole data set in there, and we felt that the issues in that paper were all important issues. We tested three hypotheses, uh, and so I, I thought that was a responsible, conscientious way to get everybody to get their payoff, get the data set in the literature, and we, we could go from there. Then in November that year comes this point-counterpoint, and in that, Peter and Matthew Bundle are up against, so no, we're no longer on the same side of the river. <laughs> We've now found opposite sides of the uh, opposite riverbanks and peter and matthew had a paper called uh, artificial legs make artificially fast running speeds possible that's responded to by a group that includes um all the others basically cram grabowski her and so forth this is the you cannot be serious exchange maybe peter can just explain how that developed and what some of the issues arising were out of that so i mean before you answer that so when you delivered the paper initially you obviously knew that there are there were different there were there were some different approaches to what the conclusion was here right from the release of that first paper. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. it's almost right. like all so, the cards so already there was the already there was a rift. Yeah, all the cards have not been placed on the table, right. and nor were they placed on the table at CAS, and that's that's one of the structural problems with the way these things run. Actually, it's not unique to this issue, but it's just we'll come back to that. I think. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So. Yeah. so <laughs> So in the the point counterpoint debate, uh, those are those the dynamics that still exist to this day emerged in that point counterpoint debate. So, uh, you know, I felt pretty good that we had crafted this compromise. It was Roger Crom and myself, and Roger's generally a very reasonable person. Uh, so, as we proceeded in it, the way the process works, um, the journal has to agree to host the debate, and then it the the point and counterpoint coming forth from the different sides go to the editorial office uh, and then they they ship it back out so we put our our point in the editor-in-chief sends it back out to to them and you have about a month or so to write the rebuttal uh so we made our case and, and I, I felt we did a, a pretty reasonable job you know we're trying to be objective and get at the truth uh their counterpoint went in uh and i think there, there really wasn't a lot of scientific heft in what they said i mean the only thing matt and i felt was legitimate was that they said you've only got an n of one which was true but but at the rebuttal stage because we, this was the first place we publicly introduced the fact that pistorius from from our analysis had a a roughly a 10 second advantage uh, over the 400 meter race, which at that time was news. Yeah, I want to read you actually, because it's useful. Basically what Peter had done, remember the, the source of the advantage was super fast limb repositioning. And so the approach you used, and again, I'd, I'd like Peter to please correct me if I get this wrong, using the swing time of 0.359, which was typical, remember Pistorius was 0.284. So if they increased Pistorius' swing time, and change the contact length of 1.05, adjusted to equal the ratio of the intact limb athletes, they ended up reducing his top speed from 10.8 to 8.3. So that's the implication. If we, if we made some modeling adjustments on Pistorius, such that he'd reposition those light limbs the same times as everyone else, he'd slow down from 10.8 to 8.3, 
the implication of which would be that his 200 meter performance would slow down by about six seconds and his 400 meter performance would drop by nearly 12 seconds. That was the, and that was in this cool. counterpoint. So that's, that's to put a number on the size of the advantage that Peter and Matthew Bundle felt existed. Yeah. Yeah. So that point was made in the counterpoint. Okay. Peter? It's, mm -hmm. So the rebuttal, this is where we get into the exist, the dynamics that exist to this day. Their, their rebuttal, I think is, is fair. It's fair to say that it was, it was emotional in nature. They, they started the rebuttal by, Quoting John McEnroe, who uh, is is a well known uh, tennis former tennis professional, uh, who who isn't uh, whose primary reputation is for bratty behavior, to put it bluntly. Uh, so, <laughs> and the young, you... younger members of your audience may not remember who he is. So, I... <laughs> I'm sorry, Mike. The quote was the quote was you cannot be serious, and I remember reading it and going like that. Wow, I don't, I've never seen that in a scientific journal. Did you know that it's not there anymore, Peter? Uh, I, I, the last time I looked at it, it still was Ross. It, it, well, it's I, not, it's not present. Well, I'm looking at one now that quotes by that starts with a quote from Carl Sagan saying extraordinary claims require oh, extraordinary evidence. Yeah. That was a similar technique that they did in the, in their original contribution. So their counterpoint starts uh, with Sagan, right, their, 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 their rebuttal starts with John McEnroe saying you cannot oh, be so serious. Right. So they used the same device twice. The mm -hmm. first time That's right. right. Sorry. Exactly. I'm, looking at the, right. I'm looking at the counterpoint. You're quite right. Yes. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. You cannot be serious. So they were, it's fair to say they were smashing rackets at this point. And that, that rebuttal piece went on to say, you know, Wayne and Bundle's, you know, analysis in quotation marks is insulting and absurd to Paralympic athletes. Uh, and then that that paragraph at the beginning of the rebuttal underneath John McEnroe quote said, would Michael Johnson uh, run 13 seconds faster if you cut off both his legs? So as Ross noted, this this is not standard scientific discourse. So we were shocked. I mean, we were just, <laughs> just shocked because you, you recoil. You're like, because these are our colleagues. I mean, we were trained in the same laboratory with the same advisors that we had published with. I'd published with you and Roger. Uh, and I thought we'd done pretty well, you know, uh, keeping our differences uh, scientific and, and, and conforming to scientific norms for debates. But th this is, you know, pretty far out of bounds, as Ross noted. Uh, and and the, other, the other thing that happened in the midst of this was... Uh, in that rebuttal, they introduced new data that had not been published, which is against the journal rules for these debates. So we saw these numbers coming in to to try to to say that oh, Pistorius's limb repositioning or swing times were not super short. In fact, in 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 our piece, we noted that uh, there were there were. There was quality data on at that time five world record holders in the hundred meters from the track on their re limb repositioning times, and Pistorius was seventeen percent more brief than these athletes that were much faster than he was, and uh, at speed running at speeds at least ten percent faster than he was running. So they introduced data to say no, that wasn't true, and the data was clearly wrong, and it hadn't been published. So we we got this rebuttal, Matt Bundle and I, and we're like, oh. What is going on with this? I mean, you re we recoiled from the emotion and then you get over that and you go, they're putting these numbers in that are not published and they're clearly wrong. So I contacted the editorial office and said, this has gone off the rails and um, they're introducing, they've broken, they've clearly, I'm almost certain they've broken the rules in a way that advantages them and disadvantages us in this debate. Uh, and I, I called 
uh, I sent an email and within a 24 hour period, I didn't have response. So to make sure, because this is on a fast timeline and there's a lot of public attention on these issues. Uh, I called the the office of the editor in chief and the response I got, I said, I identified myself. This is why I'm calling. And I said, I don't know what you normally do in a situation like this. And I'll never forget the response that came back was we've never had a situation like this. <laughs> I mean, is it, could you hazard a guess as to what the motivation was? to go go against the your findings and and be less scientific and more emotional any any idea as to what the motivation was uh so uh, there there was an unwillingness really from uh you know if you just look at what was in the point counterpoint at that time i think probably the most insight into your question and it, it emerges later with leaper it's very clear that that the that there's an agenda in blake leaper's case to to get him eligible regardless of what the science say but here it was just all we had was all of all of this this emotional this is these are not scientific arguments cutting off people's legs talking about being insulting and absurd quoting john McEnroe. so clearly you know there are non-scientific tactics being engaged to try to um have an impact on, on opinions you know and to have people not believe the objective work that that matt and i were putting forward and you know science is science people should look at what we do critically but the response which should have been a critical scientific response was was really not it was highly emotional um and highly charged and you don't typically see that in a journal debate with with all that having happened, I mean, this paper, the fastest run on artificial legs, the one that you published collectively, the seven of you, do you do you regret that you made it work the way that you did, given what subsequently happened as as a result of it? Uh, good question, Ross. I, I haven't reflected on that one particularly. My my take on it has always been. I was grateful that we crafted the response because I don't know how else we would have moved forward with with doing the responsible things, which were getting all of the Pistorius data set in the literature so other scientists could also have an informed point of view. Um, and everybody that worked on the project, including the junior scientists, getting, getting credit for, for what they had done. Um, so if we hadn't done that, I, I don't know how we would have proceeded and gotten, you know, my motivation was, get the science out, interpret it as best we can, and then, you know, let it become mm. part of the body of literature. So I never really, I, I was always grateful for that. And in fact, when we hit, had the, the, uh, the point counterpoint debate uh, go, you know, uh, outside the rules due to the actions of, of the authors on the other side, my, one of my concerns was that the, the editor in chief would just pull the plug and say, if you, you, you all can't abide by these rules, if you're not, you can't, it's a simple one page set of rules. If you can't do that, forget it. I'm withdrawing the invitation to submit this. And then I don't know where we would have been. It would have been tough sledding from there. So I also thought it was important that both points of view were in the same place. Yeah. And and once this rebuttal and counterpoint thing started to play out, did you face pressure from legal and corporate sources to not voice the opinion? Because I remember at the time, and you can imagine, particularly here in South Africa, Pistorius was was loved, and he was yeah. he was his photograph was all over London. It was in the subways and on the bus side of buses and so on. He was a massive, massive name. And Ross, you weren't particularly popular around that time because of your uh, utterings. Well, certainly not with, <laughs> not with them. I mean, and well, anyone... emo emotionally, you know, it's a bit like the Castor Semini issue because yeah. people emotionally get invested and they say, well, how can he not have not how could he have an advantage? You know, yeah, an so, emotional issue. So I had an opinion. I mean, lots of people had an opinion. Opinion. Maybe that mine would have been in the minority, but Peter here had a scientific opinion that was going to be published in a 
journal, it was going to be subject mm. to significant scrutiny. And I just wonder whether you experienced or felt that pressure either overtly or su- subtly uh, to not say what you're saying. It was never an option. So I, I, you know, the core, core ethics of what we're supposed to do as scientists, it just, we were obligated to tell the truth about data. And I, and I felt there was such a massive uh, amount of attention uh, internationally on these issues. I, I thought it was critically important to get it out. Um, you know, I never considered any other course and Matt, Matt Bundle is, you know, has the same point of view that I do. So we knew that, that there would be a reaction, um, but we were determined to do it. And, and because it's simply the right thing to do and um, come, come what may, I suppose. And, and there, there was a bit of a storm when it hit. Once it's out there and the storm hits, now all the cards have been played. The, the, only half yeah. the deck has been seen by Cass. Now all of a sudden the full deck is on the table. Did World Athletics back then, IAAF, come to you and say, with this in mind, maybe we need to reopen this? But you see, they can't do that, right? So was there any, I guess what I'm getting at is, is was there any discussion at that time that the CAS hearing might be challenged? Or were they just resigned to the fact we've lost this battle? Let's see how he goes in London. And of course, then what happened was after London, he derailed his own career. And it took Leaper to re, re, uh, reinvigorate the yeah. discussion. Uh, so world athletics certainly didn't didn't come to us after that I, d- I don't know what their internal deliberations at that time may have been uh it was interesting though that the first cast award ended with specific notation that hey we're not saying this guy doesn't have an advantage we recognize he might we're just saying mm-hmm. we haven't seen the evidence of it um and i suspect and, and I'm, this is me speculating I, I don't know how how world athletics viewed uh the issues once we came out with our scientific view that um, that he had about a 10 second advantage because it did make a bit of a splash because people at that point, uh, Ross included, I think thought that, you know, all of the, the members of the group were kind of in uh, the hip pocket of the attorneys and Pistorius's management team. Of course, we couldn't say anything. I was like, no, mm. I'm going to write by the science. Yeah. Um, yeah so mm. um, at that point, I think if you look at that first cast ruling with Pistorius, I, I, the, I, then IAAF, uh, they, they took it on the chin because they you, know, you just can't look at the way they handled it initially and feel like they were giving Pistorius a fair shake. So I, I suspect they just said, okay, we'll leave bad enough alone, right? Uh, and move, and we'll move on. And were you similarly relieved to move on at that stage? I mean, I would imagine the process of all this with the Journal of Applied Physiology must have been a bit draining. And by London, maybe you're an interested observer, but were you were you actively involved in research? Were you pursuing this any longer, or did you let go of it to focus on other things? Uh, well, it has a way of staying with us. It's never really has gone away, right? Uh, and we wanted to keep moving forward with just our our, our sprint research agenda. And the Paralympians are really um, they're really powerful. You know, these different limbs that they run with uh, were potentially enormously informative in a lot of different ways. They're they're a great group to work with, and the 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 Paralympics, you know, as a, as a sport is uh, unique and uniquely valuable in the sort of sporting universe. So, um, so in that sense, I, I just, I think both Matt and I are, you know, pretty, um, uh, you know, we were rooted, we were focused on our, our scientific goals and not deterred from them. Uh, but it, it was enormously consuming that that summer that Pistorius ran in London, 2012, I think, I think I probably spent nearly a full month doing nothing but, but fielding journalistic inquiries. 
<laughs> I mean, just just for those that are, that are listening, obviously, just to look at the timeline, in 2008, it was the Court of Arbitration that struck down the IWF's decision, and he was allowed to run in the Olympic Games. He got to the semifinals, never got through to the final. He participated in the relay, and I don't think South Africa made it through to the final in the relay either. So he, he was, you know, he did participate in the able-bodied in able-bodied games as a result of all of this and then yeah. and then came the paralympics london yes where something happened that was almost a um foretelling of where this thing would go next <laughs> because pastorius was beaten in the 200 by alan Oliveira, brazil and subsequently accused him of cheating by having legs that were too long yeah and Oliveira never really i think it's safe to say realized that potential i mean if you think he was a young kid in 2012 with the next olympics in his own country I remember watching Oliver and saying, this is the guy who's going to run an able-bodied world record. <laughs> Never happened. I'm not sure what exactly happened with Oliveira, but along comes Leaper. And so I suppose... So this, unless, is, this is chapter two. So, so chapter two then, <laughs> I suppose, begins slowly, but then ramps up quite quickly in the last few years. And that's, the, that's Blake Leaper, right, Peter? And, and maybe you can just mm. talk a little bit about how this thing comes around to your lab doorstep once again. Yeah, so to pick it up from that that 200 Paralympics that Pistorius was, everyone expected him to win, and Alain Oliveira from Brazil ran him down in dramatic fashion down the home the home stretch of that 200 meters after lengthening his limbs. But it's it's critical to note that that Oliveira was running on limbs that were anatomically long, but they were legal given the Paralympic rules at that time. Blake Leeper came third in that 200 meter race, uh, and there was a a, a, a large row because of Pistorius's comments that that Ross just related. Uh, and I think the Paralympics realized we've got to tighten down on these regulations. So they took a harder look and some better data sets became available on how they should assign a maximal length for the bilateral amputees. Because one of the largest challenges the Paralympics has, it, it's a phenomenal organization and a phenomenal event, but but competitive equity is hard when you have differing levels of disability. So how you do that across these categories is an enormous challenge for them. And, but they, so for the bilaterals versus the unilaterals, the length of the bilateral amputees, the maximum length they could run at was, was a really important issue. And so they changed the rules in 2018 uh, and they became uh they were the max lengths that were allowable after they changed the formula, which they call the mash. It's the max allowable standing height. Um, the, the leg lengths that were, that Leaper had been running on were now over the max limit. Once they changed the rule in 2018 by 15 centimeters or six inches. So both he and Oliveira were running on, on limbs that were anatomically disproportionately long and Pistorius called it out and said, Hey, this isn't fair. This guy's getting an advantage. And the other backdrop to that was the cast locked Pistorius in at the limb lengths in, in the specific pr prosthesis he was tested in. So he was in a bind because he couldn't lengthen after years and years of saying, I run fast because I'm an athlete, not because of my blades. If he then turns around and lengthens his blades and runs faster, you know, he, he can't do that, I think, without looking like he's being inconsistent. So that was yeah. part of what was in the backdrop, I think, at that time. Right. Maybe before we get into leap and, and mash, um, tell us why limb length is so important to sprinters biomechanically. So yeah, to, to distill it down, it really sprint limitations are force and time. And we've talked about the force component. You have to be very forceful on the ground in relation to body mass. Uh, the other 
thing that's critical to recognize about speed and speed limitations is that the, the faster a, a runner runs, the less time they spend in, in contact with the ground. And, and essentially, there's, there's no way to avoid it. So the way we explain it is to say, look, an average size male, uh, male sprinter, uh, you know, who's, you know, one, one point, uh, you know, eight, five meters tall or thereabouts, the, the length that they travel forward on the ground when they're in contact is a little bit longer than the length of their legs. So one meter is a typical length that somebody moves forward. So if they're, if they're traveling over ground at one, at one meter per second, really slow speed, which is a walk, their, their foot's going to be in contact with the ground for, for one second. But if they speed up to two meters a second, then they're only down for half a second. If they run at 10 meters a second with that forward contact length, then they're only, they have to get down and back up in a 10th of a second. So those, 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 that simple example illustrates that the faster you run, the shorter your foot ground contact time has to be there's, and there's really no way around that. And runners tend to take the same contact lengths across intermediate fast speed. So in all the elites that we test, they're down around uh, nine hundredths of a second at, at the speeds that they run, which is well over 11 meters per second. Um, and the only way to, in that short of time to get the lift, to execute the, the repositioning time that they need to have enough time to reposition is to be really forceful on the ground. So that's, that's how those pieces fit. So if you now put a longer leg in there, what the longer leg does is it means you travel further forward um, during that, that, that contact period. So the minimum contact period is the single best predictor by far of how fast people can run. Uh, the shorter it is, the faster you go. So if you now introduce a longer leg and you have that same minimum contact time, your speed is enhanced uh, in, a, in a manner that's directly proportional to how much you lengthened your leg. Makes sense, right? Yeah, yeah, makes total sense. Yeah, yeah. So when they when they cut uh, the length of the limbs that is legal, right? So they reduce this. Well, they, they introduce this mash concept, maximum line standing height. Suddenly, leaper's blades are fifteen centimeters in its in excess of that height uh, for him. Just explain very briefly, Peter, how that's calculated. It's not it's not simply saying it's not it's not a guess based on a small cohort it's actually quite a robust process that yeah. estimates a range in which you could be based on your I think forearm length radius. Uh, I'm not sure exactly. You might tell us more. So it's, there's there's four inputs. It's upper arm length, lower arm length, sitting height, and femur length. So this is for the bilateral amputees. And based on a large data set that that a Spanish investigator Alicia Kanda put together in 2000 and published in 2009. So she did all these measurements on hundreds and hundreds of people with you know fully intact bodies, so that she knows the length of the lower limb also. Uh, and so the parallel. Olympics adopted her formula. She she tested it on for the males for the bilateral amputee equation at over 400 males and then validated it on 100 independently. And the error in that formula is under under two centimeters. They take those four measurements, and in each of them is weighted. So you know different body types. You might have some people with longer sitting you know higher sitting heights for given uh, standing height and shorter limb lengths and vice versa. But the formula takes all that into account because the database is large enough. Okay, so, oh, so that's then, how you establish how long the prosthesis can be mm. based on this, that, that research. Yeah. And Leap has now been told you can't use the length you're using. Right. 15 centimeters over the, the limit. And I, I suppose at that point, World Athletics crafts new policy around this. And that's what Leaper ends up challenging. So here we are back for, as we say. So, so just to just to take a step back. So Leaper's main thing is he's trying to get involved and, and participate in the Tokyo Olympics mm. in 2021, it turns out in the end. But, um, and that's what he's fighting for. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. that's that's right to say. Peter, he wants to participate in able body. The same same arguments Pistorius yeah. is making. Yeah. Except the the policy that he's now challenging has evolved over time, and it's a little bit different at this point. It still fascinates me why World Athletics would not have included some of the work that had been done on Pistorius in the new policy. It seems to it seems that that work is historical now and it's all about length mm. as opposed to here's the advantage because of the mass of the legs which was really the reason for Pistorius's advantage anyway so the the Paralympics obviously this this is a, an issue that's front and center um, but because nobody after Pistorius up until Leaper had had applied to be eligible for um, the able-bodied competitions the issue world, world athletics didn't have a policy so uh, and, and part of that was what was in play in the in the leaper hearings, you know, should should we apply the Paralympic rule or not? But the other essential part of this history is that when the new rules went in, uh, to the best of my knowledge, all of the other bilateral amputees in the Paralympics complied with the rule. But leaper was unwilling to. So from 2018 forward, he was not eligible for Paralympic competition because he was unwilling to shorten his limbs. So. While he's choosing to be ineligible for Paralympics, he simultaneously got engaged in this effort to, on the basis of a claim he wasn't advantaged, to try to get Olympic eligibility. And presumably he's found his way to the same group who defended Pistorius's perceived lack of advantage. You came in on the side of World Athletics and found yourself once again... (laughs) evaluating in different yeah. Paralympic athletes, right. a double NPT. Yeah. So in 2018, Hugh Herr and Roger Crom's trainee, Alina Grabowski, who's uh, a Colorado Boulder uh, professor in, in a department there who'd done, who was point, one of the researchers on their side on the, the point-counterpoint debate. Uh, and she was part of the original team involved in Pistorius, just to remind she, the listeners. She, yeah. yeah, she was. And so they started testing Blake in 2018. Uh, and it's clear if you look at the record that there there was a, a group, uh, Pistorius' attorneys, and they were, they were all in a group with Blake Leeper, Alina Grabowski, two, two of her, her graduate student trainees, Paolo Toboga, Owen Beck. Um, they, they, they put together, they did a lot of testing on Leeper in 2018, and that testing got incorporated into his application to, to World Athletics that, that was uh, submitted, uh, I think, in, in uh, 2019, thereabouts. Yes, and that was eventually published in a paper. It might have been more than just this one, but the main one, I believe, was a paper by Taboga et al. And you can find the Leaper decision. Let me not give away what it was, but in the Leaper decision, you will see a summary of the kind of thing they did. So, for instance, your question earlier, Mike, about the start, they focused heavily on how Leaper starts and how he runs the bend. And for instance, they found that he has a disadvantage as a consequence of the start, which is, I think, logical. You know? mm. And you can see it, by the way. You, even when you watch the Paralympics, you see the double amputees relative to the single amputees are left in the blocks, but then they finish much faster. So the, the arguments that were presented at CAS by Grabowski involved, I don't know whether you'd say primarily, Peter, you can add to this, arguments that Leaper was losing so much time at the start and on the bends that there was no way he could have had an advantage. Fair to say that was their position. Mm-hmm. So they presented only disadvantages and tried to quantify them. Right. And I want to, because when I read this, I literally printed this thing out and was making notes and 0.372 
and 373. I literally wrote WTF in the column alongside this. <laughs> I, I still to this That's day. That's a scientific. Uh... I know. <laughs> I still to this day can't believe that they took this argument to the court. I want to read this to you here. So it logically follows. This is the contention by Leaper's scientific experts. It logically follows from that proposition that Mr. Leaper's personal record, if he had intact biological legs, would be 1.81 seconds faster than his actual personal record of 44.38. Mr. Leaper would be capable of running the 400 in a time of 42.57 seconds if he was not a double amputee. Next point, same argument. Accordingly, he would be capable of running the 100 meter in 9.50 seconds faster. So they effectively took, based on their experts, research that Blake Leeper is such a good athlete that he would be the world record holder in the 400 and the world record holder in the 100. And the way they got to that point is that, as Peter just said, they only measured the disadvantage. They didn't even consider the possibility of an advantage. And so they, it, it just seems to me like you, the most outrageous tactical mistake to go to people and say, you know what, our guy's so good that not only are there rare people in history who've broken 44 and 10, our guy would break 9.5 and 43, and then believe that that is going to somehow strengthen their, their case. And of course, in the decision, this gets, this gets kicked soundly into touch. Cass says it is implausible that this argument could be correct because of the implications that they presented. It, it, was, it was an astonishing thing to put in front of that panel of experts. I could not believe it. Yeah, your, your comments on that, <laughs> your thoughts? Quite, I, I have to agree with Ross. I mean, quite something in, in terms of strategy. I mean, even if if you take the most skeptical view and you say their only, their only goal is to get Leaper eligible and therefore it, if the science doesn't support it, you're going to try to put one over on the cast – that that's not a good presentation. It's just it's not it's obviously not credible. And if you read the award, you can see um, th that the the panelists on the cast pointed specifically to those things and said Alina Grabowski and Owen Beck and Paolo Taboga did not meaningfully engage with the question of whether there was a potential advantage. They only they only looked for disadvantages, and of course, and they exaggerated them. So, and that's the outcome of it. So, um, it's really quite something. Again, I mean, maybe this is something both of you can sort of answer is that I'm struggling to understand, first of all, the motivation behind trying to get these athletes eligible, because unless do they have a monetary reason for being involved? Is that, are they emotionally involved? I mean, Ross, we've talked a, bit, a little bit about this before we did the podcast off, off air, but what, what are your thoughts around why? This happens. I mean, wow. we've seen this not only in this situation where scientific minds do disagree and some of the arguments are so, in a way, ludicrous that it seems, how can they come from scientists? Yeah, you see, and, and this is, the this is I think, the key philosophical question out of this podcast. Yeah. Because what this whole thing, and Peter's been immersed in it, and I've experienced similar on the transgender debate and even with Castor Semenius, that when you take what, and these are, these are relatively complex situations, mm. and they're not intuitive perhaps but they're also not impossible <laughs> i mean the data peter saw and some of the stuff i've just read now it's actually fairly clear what's happening here but the the interpretation of this data is so wildly different that it makes you ask that question and i think what happens is and i you know i'm, I'm interested to hear from someone else who's been there is that you get this it's an adversarial situation you're in mm. a court of arbitration you on the one side me on the other side Peter spoke about having these hot tubs. They basically put the experts and they come up with a question. 
And then they try and seek agreement and disagreement. And then the panel has to decide what the meaning is of the disagreements. Okay, we see that you agree on ABC, but we recognize disagreements in XYZ. And you know what? We think that those disagreements are quite important for the following reasons. Therefore, we conclude what we do, right? That's how it works. Mm. But it creates, in, and I think it's human nature, it creates such a territorialism that actually you find yourself rejecting everything. <laughs> the, the, at some point in the process, the desire to seek common ground actually evaporates and all that is left is confrontation. That's how I found it was with Semenya. We, I used to sit in groups with other experts and they were clever, smart people, people who trained me. And they would see an argument that was being made by World Athletics about why Semenya shouldn't compete. They said, oh, this is rubbish. Hang on a moment. Why, why is it rubbish? Actually, you, you've allowed ideology to overtake your rational scientific training a little bit here, you know, because yeah. you've become, become us versus them. That's part of it. But the other thing here is that the people on the other side are very clear in their motivations. We don't have to guess. They've told us. You know, Hugh Herr, for instance, is on record saying he wants to use tech to drive human performance without limitation. Grabowski, similarly, P Peter knows more about this. So I want to actually hand the baton over now and ask him to talk about this situation. But I think I think it's natural for you to become adversarial, mm -hmm. shutting down anything that doesn't agree with you, not engaging any longer with it, as, as Cass has literally concluded. But also, in this particular instance, they, they've got motives, and those are important to get out. Yeah, so Peter, yeah, maybe you can pick up from what Ross has just said. The critical dynamic has been identified, and that is that the more emotional the issues become, the more that that can has the potential to to drive disagreement. And so, in 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 the blade controversies, every time uh, at every juncture where the data piled up to show very clearly that the the advantage exists, those are the same junctures at, at which. Hugh Herr, Roger Crom, Alina Grabowski deviate from science, become emotional, and say things like they did in the rebuttal, which is, you know, Wayne and Bundle's argument is insulting and absurd to, to Paralympians. And so as the data piles up, they, they consistently deviate to highly charged emotional arguments because the, and, and so just take it at face value. It's clear that these, this is not what they're doing is not driven by science and objectivity. It's driven by their personal investment in, in these issues. And as Ross noted, Hugh Herr's stated goal of his prosthetics research program is, is augmentation and enhancement. He's been saying it for 25 years, very publicly. Uh, and in the public record, Alina Grabowski has flatly stated, you know, I need to provide evidence to the IAAF to make Blake eligible. And, and it is, it should be noted that Hugh Herr, who in, in a lot of respects is the patriarch of the whole scene um, on the, the, the no advantage side, um, Alina Grabowski was trained by him and even her scientists. Uh, Hugh is a high profile guy who has a a lot of uh, at Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He's got a high-profile program, lots of lots of grant money. He's a double amputee himself, um, and so if you listen to him speak on these topics, he at times will say in interviews, "Well, I was accused of having an unfair advantage after I lost my limbs and went back to competitive." rock climbing. So uh, certainly there is in the background, the potential for these issues to be very emotional and, and for that to interfere, interfere with objectivity. Now I will say in the case of Hugh, uh, um, how could it not be? Of course. I mean, he's lived this life without lower limbs that he had until he was 17. So there's no, and he certainly deserves credit for, you know, focusing on trying to improve these limbs, but 
you you can either you can be an advocate or you can be a scientist. You cannot be both at the same time. And particularly with Alina Grabowski's statements, she's openly acknowledged that she's representing this athlete and serving as an advocate with a personal goal to get him eligible. In the case of Blake Lieber, it's the same. It's, it's the same storyline playing out in the transgender thing. When the IOC develops this policy, who did they consult? Trans women. So. When the policy came out saying trans women have no advantage, well, was that evidence or advocacy that led you to that position? It's the same thing. Mm. It's it's not, and I guess it is a criticism of the people involved because they're in a they're, they should know that they're in a place where they shouldn't. But at the same time, they shouldn't be. But at the same time, who else has got the motive to investigate it and be passionate and and pursue those questions? It's going to be the Hughes and the Joanna Harpers and so on on the on the trans issue, but. It it just distorts the whole issue. It's emotion, personal involvement, and in the end, it it colors how we interpret the science. It, it it filters out good science. It allowed them to reject Peter's arguments and respond with poor quality video and and John McEnroe quotes. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, so that's the that's the issue. Is that, is that um, yeah? It's it's just ideals, not science. So what what, what I mean just to kind of get up to speed of the leaper in particular. So obviously he's had research done by, by uh, Grabowski who delivered a, a paper, which said that he had no advantage. You then delivered this paper, which we talked about in August. Just talk us through what you saw of their protocols versus your protocols. And were those same arguments that they were talking about during the Oscar Pistorius issue, the same with leaper as they were with Pistorius. So the, the issues are, are a little bit different scientifically. So we talked about Pistorius repositioning in really short periods of time. Uh, Leaper's timing variables on these these unnaturally long limbs were, were within normal range, but he's doing it with a from a, a, a sort of a non-biological you know body, body dimensions with this lower leg. Um, so with Leaper, it was really the, the length of his legs. But if we then say, okay, how did that play out in the science, I think, per, per your question, Mike. So yeah. after losing three rounds, you know, not um, make trying to make a case, Hugh Herr and Alina Grabowski were emphatic in their in what in their their viewpoint that leg length has no effect on running speed. Right. And so that was that was shot down three times. It's it's not true. It's demonstrably not true. Uh, but after losing through three rounds, twice at the cast and once for the mechanical aids review panel, World Athletics, those arguments were not accepted. And Russ broke down some of um, how non how, how not credible the arguments were uh, earlier in this year, 2022, uh, Owen Beck, Paula Toboga, Lena Grabowski published a paper with a conclusion that uh, artificial limbs for these double M amputee sprinters, artificial limbs are not unequivocally advantageous. So the data for, for Blake Leeper disproved that before they even submitted the paper, because by the time we get to 2022, there are now, because the court said your legs are too long and they're, they're advantageous, Blake Leeper ended up after those losses shortening twice. And every time he shortened, he slowed down. So there were there was data from the lab and the track on two sets of limbs when they submitted that paper, and we call call this up in our in our comment piece that Ross referenced at the outset of the podcast. That um, and then on the track now, there's three sets of limbs, and in every case, the shorter he goes, the slower he goes. Um, and and also, sorry, I think it's important to add to that. It's not necessarily the sh shorter he goes, the slower he goes. He goes slower by an amount 
that is quite reliably predicted by Peter's models on mm-hmm. how leg length will predict top speed, will predict performance. Your your prediction, Peter, uh, I'll get the numbers wrong, so I'm going to ask you, what was your prediction if he, lim- if he reduced the length by X on performance and what actually happened? So that's an excellent point, Ross. So the numbers are really tight, right? So it, when we went to the first cast hearing when Limp- Leaper was running on limbs that were 15 centimeters over the max allowable, um, we projected he would he would he would lose about nine if he went to mash compliant, reduced by 15 centimeters, he would lose roughly. Don't hold me to the exact number, uh, eight to nine seconds off his 400 meter time. Um, but we predicted in the cast that if leaper were to shorten that on the top speed tests that we do in the treadmill uh that for each centimeter he shortens his top speed would be reduced by a tenth of a meter per second so initially when he lost he he shortened by five centimeters so he was still 10 centimeters over max allowable but he reapplied and the process allowed him to do that so when he went to plus 10 shorter by five centimeters from his original 10 centimeters over max allowable we tested him um, at SMU, the world athletics asked if we would do that. We did. Uh, and the prediction was dead on. So he had run on the long limbs plus 15. He'd been tested in Colorado. He ran 11.4 meters per second for his top speed. We tested him at SMU. He ran 10.9. And that reduction allowed us to say, okay, on the track for 400 meters, this means if he races on those limbs, he's going to be about 2.1, 2.2 seconds slower over 400. And he, and it ended up that he through six races, he was slower by 2.4 seconds. So it was, it was dead on. On, essentially yeah so that in a sense is i think it's important because it vindicates it's almost it vindicates the model uh because it's a real world application there's always an argument to be made that the lab doesn't translate to the real world here you close the loop you know so i think that was quite an important thing that happened he he provided his own evidence i don't know how they were going to respond to that i mean they they obviously are just do they sidestep that reality when they make the arguments about no advantage <laughs> The, so this part of the story is even more incredible, Ross, than what you what you noted about what they put before the cast to claim that that with intact limbs that that the athlete they were representing would outrun Usain Bolt in his fastest race ever by a substantial amount. Right. So that's incredible. And and wait for Nick by about eight yeah seconds. yeah by almost half a second right in in a four hundred meter run. But uh, so they they just they ignored the data from the track. It was out there when they, they published this 2022 paper. Uh, so you, you just, I mean, I don't know, I don't know what to say about it. I mean, they, they know they're, 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 they're fully familiar with the data from the track that it disproves what they're saying in this publication and the lab data. So when we tested Blake uh, and we had a very enjoyable time testing him once uh, we had a weather emergency when Blake arrived in, in spring of 2021, I, probably it was even covered. It was bad enough. We lost power and, and, and a lot of people were really put out here um, in early 2021 by some severe winter weather that we had. So we, we were delayed by about a week getting Blake started. He was poor, poor guy was stuck in a hotel room. But as part of the testing protocol, Alina Grabowski and, and Owen Beck were there as observers, and, and he should have observers. That's the right way to go. Um, absolutely. Um, so they watched the tests. But when we did the top speed test, Owen Beck was there watching. And um, when it came time to put in our reports to the mechanical aids review panel, which was the first step after the SMU testing, um, they claimed that formally claimed that, that we had rigged the testing to try to make the data go away. 
Formally, as, as in they, they they make. How does that work? Their lawyers write a letter to. to no, they wrote to... it. They they wrote it in their report. So we submitted the report to the the mechanical aids review party uh, uh, panel for World Athletics, and they have a chance to respond. So in their response, they they claimed that we rigged the tests, and that was why he why he slowed did, down. Did he say how you rigged it? There were. There were so many allegations in what they submitted, Ross, literally dozens of them. The overarching allegation was um, that, that we had designed the test to make sure that he, he failed. But uh, there, there were so many allegations in, the, in what they submitted that some of the allegations literally conflicted with the other allegations. So to answer your question of what did they say about why the top speed test wasn't valid, in, in one instance, they said we ran him too many trials, and therefore he was too fatigued to go to his two top two top speed. But in another place, they said, well, you didn't give him enough opportunities to run to his top speed, so that's why the test didn't succeed. Um, and, and so, yeah, Owen Beck watched the test, and we administered it the same way we do with anybody else. We had a very good rapport with Blake; he was wonderful for the testing. He, he was stellar personally in, in terms of his performance. I, I think he genuinely enjoyed his time with us once we got past the big deep freeze. But um, so we did the same things we always do. You know, we, we encourage the athletes, we make sure they get enough rest, we cue them at the right time. You know, you could imagine Ross being around athletes a lot. There are times you want them to focus, there are times you want them to relax. So we've done, you know, uh, scores of these tests and know how to handle the athletes to get the best performance out of them. We typically go to failure twice. In Blake's case, there was a lot on the line. So we went to failure three times um, and I cued him, gave him advice. We've done a lot of these things. So I know what to say to them based on each trial, you know, try to do this more, try to do that more, try to transition off the rails this way. So all of those things were, were things that I pulled out of, out of my toolkit to get that I always do to try to get the best performance out of Blake. Owen Beck watched this from 20 feet away. He was a personal witness to this. And he, and he and Paolo Toboga and Alina Grabowski still turned around and in, in writing in a formal report accused me and our, and our lab group of rigging the tests. Sure. I mean, it is a real, in, I mean, they really are att attacking your integrity here to some extent as well. I mean, it's more than just wow, a bit of a, disagree a, dis a disagreement about whether science is, is plausible or not. It's it's really just attacking you and your team quite personally, it's, it sounds like. Yeah. And so I think this is the logical outcome. I mean, in some respects of if you're not telling the truth and what you're putting out there from Pistorius forward is is false and you're you're committed to convincing the public of this scientific falsehood as the data piles up and up and up. This is the place that it leaves you. So mm -hmm. rather for so for, you know, two plus years at this point, they're saying leg length doesn't matter for speed. Well, in the case of this athlete, we just did direct measures under, you know, nearly identical conditions. And sure, it does. It clearly does matter for speed. But rather than acknowledging it and saying, OK, we have to modify our conclusion. They resorted to this tactic of, of um an allegation of, of misconduct on, on my part. And by implication, all the students that were helping me, and there were five of them, um, all of whom were on the, on the paper. So the, the treatment of it by the mechanical aids review panel, I think is probably the best place to point the audience to. They, they said that the claims were extraordinary, that they were rebutted in full, and that our response to those allegations, we had to put in a response in writing um, that, it, that it made an overwhelming case to the, to the contrary. And then the review panel went on to say, if these things were true, why on earth did 
Alina Grabowski and Owen Beck not raise them at the time, but wait until, you know, six weeks later or two months later, and then make all of these allegations in, in a mm. written report. And they did know, they also noted, and I, and I think they handled it fairly and responsibly, that, that the allegations con- constituted um, a, a claim of significant professional misconduct on my part. Yeah. And I mean, I, you know, it is inevitable sure. that this is where it Amazing. ends, right? Because when you, in this instance, there's not even a, there's not even an alternative data set that addresses Peter's position. Like there are some issues in science where two well-intentioned, sincere people can look at the same thing and have slightly different interpretations of it. Mm. This is not one of those. <laughs> so instead it's actually quite predictable that it's going to go this way because how else are you going to win the argument? Mm. You have to impugn the reputation and behaviors of the person you disagree with because you can't challenge their their actual statements their daughter yeah. yeah and that's unfortunately where this was bound to go i think it's just i mean f- for for me coming from a media side and not being involved in the scientific community as much as uh, you guys are it's quite extraordinary to think that this sort of thing happens at the level that it does because as peter you've said a number of times this is a very important debate and it's creating it creates debate not only in the public atmosphere the public that look at both sides of the story because there's that emotional component to it but it's extraordinary that you know you've literally got people who should be looking at the science coming to the same conclusion um which i find remarkable actually or or, or disagreeing because <laughs> this is something i've noticed actually with other people you can disagree like in the rugby space like yeah because and, and it's a topic we'll do in future is this whole rugby head injuries concussion and implications like I think well-meaning, well-intentioned people can disagree, mm. but they will have coherent arguments explaining why they disagree, and they'll understand why they do. And this this is not that situation. No. Nothing that I've seen since 2009 in the John McEnroe quote onwards has ever indicated that there is a honest intention to examine the same object with mm. an open mind. Yeah. It's it's one it's guy holding an one interpretation. Object, Peter's yeah. holding his object, they're <laughs> holding theirs, and eventually throwing it at him. <laughs> Peter, thank you very much. It's been it's been quite a fascinating just listening to your I, your sorry, side. I just yeah, want to know where where this goes next because before we yeah. wrap up, like I mean, you've gone through this now. It's been over a decade. Mm-hmm. We've gone from open scientific curiosity to debates and rebuttals, which is cool. That's part of science. To outright accusations of malpractice or misconduct and and rigging the process. Like, what do you think it needs next or or will happen next? Any thoughts on that? So, uh, in terms of uh, the the science and and how um, the the cases of uh, amputee eligibility are handled, Ross, or well, or are you asking about the the fallout from from um, the the allegations of misconduct? And, well, I and think the... I think that the science and so on. And I mean, you mm-hmm. know, you can't forecast this. We wait now for the next athlete or for Leaper to come back mm-hmm. again for another go at it. But even more philosophically, like for me, the importance of this talk with you is actually to help people understand like the whole, the, the process of scientific discovery and integrity and how, how these issues play out in the real world is not clean. And so I'd like your learnings from that, Peter. That's, I guess, what I'm getting Yes. Yeah, so I appreciate that question. Uh, and to, it also comes back to, to Mike's comment of, boy, scientists behave this way. And in my experience, they don't, right? So I don't know any of scientists that's that's been in this position where the things that have been hurled at, at Matt Bundle and myself in print or more recently at, at me, you know, with these allegations of misconduct, I, I don't know anybody that's experienced these things. I mean, it's just really extremely out of the norm 
right? Um, but one of the hard parts for me, I don't think there's an awareness, even though all of this is public information, I don't think there's an awareness in the scientific and particularly in the biomechanics community. I think the default everybody has is, well, these are well-trained scientists. They're not going to, you know, they're not going to do something that's, you know, lacking in objectivity, but they've openly said, Elena Grabowski, that she's acting as an advocate and, and not a scientist. And then the outcome is to, um, is to make allegations at me. Um, and so they you know, try to make that data go away and they ignored in their recent public, they completely ignored the track data and they're putting papers in literature that, that, that they have to almost certainly have to know with conclusions that are not true. So the default in the community is to not dig into all those details and go, oh no, you know, they're going to behave as scientists behave, but they're not. And there's a whole, there are a lot of really troubling questions that, that it raises. So, you know, we've gone from Hugh Herr and Roger Crom to training Alina Grabowski, who's carrying on in much the same way, you know, using the scientific process or misusing it for advocacy. And then she's training Paolo Taboga and Owen Beck. And, and it's so, and the data is now piled up so much that they're all engaged in, in false claims of allegation on the part of conduct by somebody else to try to maintain the scientific falsehood. And now Owen Beck is in a position to train junior scientists at, at the University of Texas. And those things are very troubling because the the core ethic of science is, is objectivity in the, the search of truthfulness. And if scientists cannot or will not tell the truth, there's no, there's no science that can be done. I mean, there's no reason for institutions to support us. There's no reason for sponsors to fund us. And there's no reason for the public to believe us so we've reached reached a point where within within an academic discipline that requires objectivity for the process to have any value at all um, these investigators have literally stolen a page out of the worst book of american politics which is if you don't like the outcome of an election you can just claim that it's rigged that's what they did so it's extraordinary to me and that's how the world athletics panel described it so where does it go from here you know it all depends on what other people in the field do with respect to accountability. But certainly from my point of view, these behaviors are deeply destructive, you know, within the literature, within the culture. Um, and and these, this is reverberated badly. If I go on Twitter and I say, hey, this is mis or disinformation, I'm going to get pummeled because people will assume that, you know, that I'm trying to say that they're not acting scientifically. Well, of course they're, they're not, the record indicates that they're not, but people assume that they are because, and they don't know that this record. So these are really important issues that are not just limited to the microcosm of, of the integrity of information on these issues in the literature. This is really part of a much broader problem of the erosion of the information environment in the literature mm -hmm. generally and, and, and in, in, in society and out there beyond the literature. These are huge yeah. issues. And these behaviors drive us in the direction of myths and disinformation with very destructive outcomes. Yeah, that's that's actually what I was trying to get at with yeah, my question. I'm glad, I'm glad you you got the right answer for my, maybe my poorly worded question, but thank you for that. I, I, yeah. I, that was exactly no, I I do think it's critical to end on that because you know yeah. if if we as as researchers are not going to be stewards of of information uh, and scholarly and professional standards in in our own fields, no one else is going to do it for us, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Hundred percent. Thanks. Yeah. Peter Wayne, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Mike Ross. I appreciate it. I appreciate you guys having me on. Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 